Welcome to Actions Antidotes, your antidote to the mindset that keeps you settling for less. Today, I want to talk to you all about leadership, leadership in organizations, leadership in our lives. Leadership tends to set the stage for an entire organization, how people within the organization interact with one another, how they interact with the customers, and how the organization ends up being presented to everybody. A leadership that's misprioritized, misguided, can have an impact on the employees, can actually lead to employees being disengaged and disinterested, dissatisfied with their job. And given some of the statistics that we've seen recently about the percentage of employees that are indeed disengaged, it's easy to feel like we're in some kind of a multi-decade long leadership crisis at the moment. Here to help with this problem is our guest today, an executive coach, Brent Mullins of Brent Mullins Coaching. Thank you very much for joining us on the program today. Oh, thanks, Stephen. That was a great intro. Coaching is a pretty broad category of people. And so each particular person needs to establish a niche. And we've kind of covered this in some of our previous episodes about niching. To orient our listeners, what is your niche in this executive coaching world? Well, I do work across a number of industries. Most of my work is working with executives and leaders who have executive aspirations somewhere in the life sciences field. So biotech, healthcare technology, medical device, physicians, wherever they are in the life sciences space. And in particular, I work one-on-one -on -one with leaders, especially those who are wanting to take bigger strategic challenges, but they're somehow hamstrung or kept from getting to those challenges that they're after. That oftentimes leads into the other part of the work that I do, which is working with their teams, the leader and their teams, to increase the effectiveness of the team overall. So with these leaders and these aspiring leaders that you're talking about, and you talk about them being hamstrung, what are the most common challenges that people experience as they're trying to step into a leadership role or improve their leadership capabilities to create better teams? Some of the big challenges from a strategy standpoint might have to do with going into new markets. They're making something, they may be reevaluating their industrial footprint. I've never met a CEO that doesn't think growth, growth, and more growth on their head you know, every day, day in and day out. So when you've got those kind of challenges and you're living in a world like COVID, right, and navigating the pandemic, there are so many issues, people, challenges pulling on your time. It's, it's really quite remarkable. So the question becomes, how do I as a leader, keep everything going, keep my hand on the wheel, and still be able to attend to the strategic challenges that are often outside of the four walls of my business. Hmm. And so when you say outside of the four walls to your business, do you mean challenges that arise from, say, changes in markets, a new competitor emerging, or consumer trends, things like that? New technology that's popped up, establishing brand new markets like a blue ocean kind of strategy where something hasn't been before. There are competitors who are coming. You might create a premium product and there might be competitors on the low end who are coming up and just eating your lunch, right? And on top of hybrid, right? This hybrid workforce that's going on right now where organizations weren't ready to necessarily move to as dramatically and as quickly as they have to people working remotely and virtually. And so right now, given everything that's going on, the new hybrid work environment, the great resignation, as some people are calling it, people struggling to find and keep their talent. Do you feel like internal or external pressures are providing a bigger stress on most executives at this point? 
I have to say and, you know, I, I can't say either. Yeah. Seven out of 10 people are saying the flexibility that I have through this pandemic, I want to stay. And paradoxically, seven out of 10 people are saying, I want a lot more collaboration in person after this is over. So on the one hand, I want all this great, tremendous, radical flexibility. And I want the good, all the good stuff that happens when I'm face to face with my colleagues. I understand how that feels. And I have to admit, I kind of feel that way as well. Like, you know, I want to see people in person again, but love the flexibility. Have you encountered any leaders that you're either in contact with coaching that have found that magic formula to get the best of both worlds? And I think about it because I've been in places where you get the worst of both worlds. You're driving into the office every day, eight to five, but you're still doing things all on Zoom or all on Teams. And I'm just like, whoa. Have you found that formula, the best of both worlds? Have you found anyone that's really implemented a way of giving people the flexibility to live their lives according to their circadian rhythms, according to the weather, whatever people want to do, but also find that right amount of time where people are face-to-face, are in person, are collaborating with each other and getting all those benefits that make a coercive team? Cohesive team, cohesive team. Yeah. <laughs> there are plenty of coercive teams yeah, out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not looking for that, but yeah, cohesive yeah. team that really is firing all cylinders and working together. There are definitely pockets of really great practices. You know, there are some organizations who have been virtual for years and years and have really established solid virtual practices for teaming and for leadership. What I really think is right now is a, this remarkable transformation that's going to take a few years for organizations to figure out how to make this thing hum. So it is truly a learning challenge. It's an adaptive challenge for organizations to say, how do we move forward, experiment, learn, and then share those practices, integrate those best practices, and then learn again. Keep those loops of learning happening until they figure out how to do it. I really feel like hybrid, this challenge, which is partly in the marketplace with a great resignation and partly inside the organization with the frustration that employees are and leaders are all experiencing. It's a little bit like, you know, you had an industrial revolution and then you had a digital revolution. And I think honestly, now you're looking at a hybrid revolution as we go forward. So the hybrid revolution, and it's weird because the term hybrid has been used for a lot of things. I even think of suburbia as a hybrid before people started using that term, people trying to find that hybrid between urban living and living out in small town world, which is now over half the country is suburban. And so I wonder if that that stage, that mentality has already been set because a lot of times these mentalities are kind of brought about and introduced in a lot of different other areas of life. When you say that, it makes me think about something that I've definitely observed, which is this hybrid model is a bit of an amplifier. If things are not going well before COVID and before this whole virtual experiment, it usually amplifies the pain even worse. If you're a leader of leaders, right, it's one challenge. If you're a leader over people who are, have their hands on and doing their work, it's a different challenge. If your team wasn't solid before, whatever the f- cracks or the fissures were have been broken wide open for a lot of people. And the same thing can be said for the connection, which is so desperately needed in this virtual environment. There's never been a more important time to be truly connected to the people that you're working with instead of the opposite, which is isolation. And the whole silo mentality has really flourished in those virtual environments for lack of connection and lack of know-how of how to make that connection. 
that's interesting. And you talked about the levels of leadership, which I think you're talking about, like what I talked to is like middle management or the leaders over the people that are kind of doing the work. And then you talk about the executive level, which are the leaders of the leaders. Who is it most incumbent on right now to implement this iterative feedback process, this kind of learning how to keep that connection with the flexibility of the hybrid environment and bring it down to the people to make the people more engaged than they are now. If the surveys are right, most people are not engaged in their jobs. The positive way to say this is that as leaders, we role model and set the tone for the organization at that executive level. The not so positive way of saying that is the fish stinks from the head down. The beauty of the challenge, though, honestly, is that those folks in those senior roles are drawn there for a reason. You know, they like the challenge. My experience has been that they're abnormally accountable and they're oftentimes tenaciously focused on the interests of the organization. Those qualities can be remarkably positive in a time like this if they're leading through this transformation to help make it okay to experiment and to not always get the right result but to keep learning and keep moving forward. The leaders who are doing that are pushing the envelope and seeing some very positive returns. And I've heard this elsewhere too, the idea of overcoming the fear of failure, making it okay to experiment, making it okay to try something and different ways that people are coming up with to minimize the impact, like, you know, like kind of these small experiments that are common in design thinking and some other concepts. Do you think that there's an undercurrent of fear that's keeping people from embracing this, it's okay to fail model at some organizations? There's always an undercurrent, especially the higher up leader moves in an organization. I was working with a CMO, a chief marketing officer, who things were going well, but you know there was a conversation about some risk. There's not that many CMO roles out there for me to move into. Like I want <laughs> to make this work. So, you know, the stakes get higher up. Sometimes fear can accompany that and not always, but sometimes for sure. But there's also this, you know, there's so many different influences on the pressure for organizations to be successful. The idea of making a mistake and finding yourself facing triple your commodity costs. And therefore the concern and fear has just gone crazy through COVID. Have you ever encountered someone that has the aspiration to become a leader, but there's something about their attitudes or their way of being that makes you tell them either one, you shouldn't become a leader or two, you're not ready yet until you adjust this, this, and that. Well, I've never told anyone that. I think some people have rightly self-selected out because they did not enjoy the work of leadership, which has to do with people and human systems and so many things that, were, that maybe they didn't know before they stepped into that role. But I also believe that I had a really great manager earlier in my career who said that any promotion that I'm ready for is the wrong promotion. What he was saying was like, you should be stretched by any job that you move into. Otherwise, if there's no growth, if there's no challenge for you, if there's no stretch, what's the point of moving into that expanded, if you will, promotion. And one thing that's interesting about that, what I'm wondering is because poor leader, the fish stinks from the head down, right? Can have a poor impact or a bad impact on the people below them in the organization, for lack of a better way. I don't love that term, but so I'm using it to make sure everyone understands. But anyway, I guess what I'm wondering is how you balance the need to give these emerging leaders a challenge with the insurance that you're not taking these people doing the task roles 
and ruining their lives because you've promoted someone that wasn't ready for the job and it's going to kind of create conflict among the team. How do you find that right balance between the two? Certainly people have evolved into roles for the wrong reasons. Somebody might be a great salesperson, right? But not a great sales leader of other sales folks. What I would hope in that scenario is that your process for selection helps find the people who are showing the potential and the innate skill, the innate talent for the idea of leadership and moving them in there, not as someone who's not suited or not qualified or not capable, right? That would be a disaster. But you're finding the people who are drawn to the nature of the work of leadership and having them step into those jobs. I don't believe that old saying that leaders are born, not made. I, I really do believe through all the leaders that I have worked with, which is decades now, those learning is the great differentiator. The learning mindset that I, as a leader, am going to grow and evolve over my entire career. It's not like I'm going to get it all answered in one or two years after being in a leadership role. It'd be fascinating. Could you imagine someone who's at the very end of their career, who had had a lifelong experience as a leader, and to be able to ask them at different, three different points, what do you know now that you didn't know before that's vital to your success? How would that story change for that leader through 30 or 40 years? So it's a continuous learning process. And so the people you're saying that are in the wrong mindset are the people that already believe they know it all. Yeah. If you come into any challenge thinking I've got the answer and the day and age that we live in with the complexity, the constant volatility and uncertainty that we face in our everyday work lives and lives, that would be a red flag. And I believe that there's a lot of people amongst my listeners that are in this category. So what I'm curious about is how many people you think are out there that have that curiosity of some sort of aptitude or interest in leadership of some form or another, but for some reason, because of this mindset of, I need to know it all, I need to be prepared, are just not pursuing it. They just honestly believe like, okay, I'm not leveled up quite yet to that opportunity. Hmm. There's two. There's only two people out there like that. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great question. How many people? So, you know, one of your other shows with Darren Canthal talked about, you know, mental fitness and positive intelligence. At the core of that is looking at how we make our lives small through this thing called the inner critic or what he was referring to as saboteurs. Right. So that those saboteurs are fuel based. Right. Those are the limiting thoughts that we put on ourselves instead of taking the chance to say, how might I put my toe in this water and figure out if this is right for me? So what you're talking about is people self-selecting back. Like, I'm not even going to let myself try this because of whatever unspoken fear that I may or may not be even be conscious of. That, unfortunately, is something that every human being who walks the earth wrestles with. The question might be, like, how many people have someone in their lives who can say, you know what? I see the potential in you. I believe in you. And you could take that step forward and try this out. This might be a great path for you. I love also to point out to my listeners that everyone is walking this path because I believe a lot of people oftentimes feel like they're alone or that they're the only ones. I recently attended Denver Startup Week at the beginning of October, 2021, and there was a session on imposter syndrome. 
And the statistics, anytime if you attend any session or people talk about this concept of imposter syndrome is pretty universal. I believe they said something along the lines of 75 or 80%. And if any of the panel members of that is listening right now, I apologize for probably saying a wrong statistic, but that a vast majority of people encounter some form of imposter syndrome. And I think the important takeaway there is for people to look at that and realize, okay, I'm having this self-doubt in my head, but I'm not alone. Everyone has self-doubt at some point, and it's what you do with it that matters. I think at its core, it comes back to being keenly, and I mean keenly, if not exquisitely self-aware, and to work on that as a skill or a capability within yourself. And I say that because it's, it's very rare, even with people at the very most senior levels, that they have crystal clear clarity around not only what their values are, the most important values for themselves, but what is it that differentiates them from a leadership standpoint or for any facet of work that you might be in, whether it be an individual contributor or entry-level management or executive level. Few people really can sharpen that point down and say, there are three things that I am really distinctly differentiated in that has enabled my success. So in the absence of that, we go back to the imposter syndrome, right? Which is, I doubt myself because I'm not concrete on the things that drive me and fuel me and it bring me a lot of satisfaction and joy. So is that part of your program, asking people to have those three things that differentiate themselves? Part of the work of a coach, which for me gives tremendous satisfaction, is the idea of being able to see people for who they are. Putting all the facade away, get rid of kabuki, if you will, the idea of performing in the role. I'm talking about seeing the person for in their natural state about who they are and what's important to them. And seeing that, you know, I think, and being able to acknowledge that with them and, and finding the stories that support that, they're real stories, not the made up stuff, but what's real for them is very confirming. As coaches, we typically try to do that to help people find what's true for themselves. So what do you think disconnects people? Because one of the things that imposter syndrome or any kind of phoniness really stems from is people trying to be somebody else. And I've had previous podcast guests describe to me when I often describe the feedback a lot of people get, the challenge a lot of people get to their particular ideas that they're coming out with is, oh, the market's already saturated. And I've had previous podcasts that say, well, the market is saturated if you're trying to do something that someone else is already doing. But if you're just being you, the market is not saturated with you if you're being true to yourself. What keeps people trying to be somebody else or trying to be something else? One of the cornerstones of imposter syndrome, which is I discount what I do so very, very well. What comes naturally to me, that might be one of my greatest strengths for some reason, because it's so easy to me, I discount it and assume that there's no value to it. So I know a guy who is in his DNA, the guy was made to be a strategist, he, the most strategic person I've ever worked with and was handed an assignment once, strategic in nature. And this person was questioning their ability on whether or not they could follow through on it. And I was thinking if there was one person I'd ever met in my career that I would want to work on that, it was this person. It was like the fish in the water. It was like, he was. this was so who he was that he figured, well, it must not be valuable because it's so easy. 
the fact that it comes so easy to someone, someone has a natural talent. And I say this like kind of having struggled through that a little bit myself, I naturally see the connection between things that don't make sense to a lot of people, these like really disparate things. And one example I've been given to people is the connection between our extreme polarization and the rise in popularity of the Marvel comic films that are completely unrelated. But to me, it's like, it's just like, oh, it makes sense. Everybody wants to have this idea of a clear, concrete, good versus evil story and be on the winning good side of it. But to me, that came so quickly to my head that it's easy to discount and be like, oh, everyone else is coming out that quickly too. It's like, oh, this is just obvious. It probably went through your head that you said, well, everybody sees that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I oftentimes get lost and it's actually caused conflicts in some conversations when I act as if this is such a easy to identify elementary idea. When you talk to a lot of people about the idea of imposter syndrome or saboteurs, that is a prevailing theme, which is we discount the things that are natural and easy for us. On the other hand, you can recognize that as a strength and say, is that something that the world needs me to bring to it? That starts moving you in a very powerful direction. I can see that it's not me saying, well, here's what, how I want things to go. It's a little bit different. It's me saying, I've got these strengths, whatever they might be, right? Strategist, connector like yourself. Some of you can really connect the dots for some compelling big picture discussions. Where is the world inviting me to bring that strength to it? And that's how you go from sabotaging yourself to believing in yourself is taking these, finding these strengths, recognizing how powerful they really are, and then finding the place where it needs to be used. If you knew as a leader, let's say you've got 10 direct reports, whether they be leaders or individual contributors, whatever, Imagine knowing for all of them intimately what those strengths are that they have to bring to your group. And you can then say, how the group do we bring all of our collective strengths to the challenges that are in front of us? What the market's asking of us, what the world is asking of us if we're doing something with a very mission-focused organization like healthcare. There's a huge demand there. And what a beautiful alignment to say, here's who we are. Here's how we're aligned with all of our strengths. Here is what is being asked of us. How do you not be successful in that, that situation? That's amazing. And some of the best leaders I've encountered in my life are the people that can take their direct reports and quickly rattle off like, this is what motivates this person. This is what puts this person off or this is what demotivates them. And one of the things I'm wondering is if we look at leadership in this whole leadership crisis, as I started to describe it, you know, a lot of this fish stinks from the head down stuff. What do you think is the biggest problem? Do you think there's a lot of leaders out there right now who are focusing on the wrong things? Or is there like, they need to be more focused on the people they're leading, more interested in who they are and how they motivate them? I might be a bit of a broken record, but I feel like I come back to this idea of learning. The challenge isn't so much that there are a lot of flawed folks out there because all of us are flawed. We all have our challenges, right? And we all have these beautiful, wonderful strengths that are just a part of who we are. I think the idea that we don't have to learn continually throughout our career 
and that it's a commitment to evolve. How do we show up to bring the best out of the people that we work with? That's a tough challenge because so often we've had the idea of you have to go be trained. Well, not really. There's a lot of daily experimentation that can happen that doesn't require you to go off to a class somewhere. It doesn't mean you have to go even read a book. Find a peer group who are people like you, who you can talk to and learn their best practices, right? Build a cohort that can share support for when you fall on your face, get some advice. There's a million ways that we can evolve as learners to make daily incremental gains forward. And is learning a mindset? For example, I feel like there's a lot of people that can go out into the world and have the same exact experience but one person can learn a lot from and another can just not get any lessons at all. Well, I have the image of someone that goes into a discussion and say any, whether it's an impromptu discussion or one that is formalized. And there's one person who will actively listen to everything everyone says. And even if they disagree with something said, they'll learn something about, oh, you have this perspective because of this experience or because of this personality type or something. And a different person that will go into that same discussion and be like, no, I already know. I already know the answer. Done. Love is work. You can have an adaptive challenge as a leader, or you can try to bring a technical solution right out of the gate. And this idea that we're supposed to have the answers when framed with a challenge is the great fallacy. The real challenge of leadership in so many ways is asking the right question. Right. And continuing to frame the questions in the context that you're facing. You know, no leader anymore is probably going to have a greater knowledge of whatever work they do. If they're engineers and you're a VP of engineering, there are a hundred people in your organization who know more about engineering than you do anymore. The idea of leading knowledge workers means that people are going to grow their subject matter expertise deeper and further than people who are in the leadership ranks because of the nature of the job. They have to be externally focused. They have to look at the organization. They have to be focused on the big levers of the organization to be successful. One of the things is that we're talking about how the world is changing a little bit, but also kind of how the rate of change is a lot different than it was back in the day. There was a time when you did a job and the hammer was the hammer, right? But coding languages change every 12, 18, 24 months, you need some form of retraining on that. And so it's hard to maintain that full knowledge base. In your time as a executive coach, what do you see as the trends in how people are looking at leadership now versus say 10, 20 years ago? Well, you hit a big one, which is this idea of perpetual whitewater of the VUCA. What is that? There's a great acronym, VUCA, volatility, uncertainty. I, I can't remember the C and the A. Yeah. <laughs> But the idea that there's an acceleration there, but I also see greater skepticism about sending people off somewhere to learn something because the knowledge just does not transfer very well. I don't have any data behind this, but I think I see a lot of people more interested in working with what is, like the talent that is today. That's who they want to say, I have a square hole and I need a square peg to fit in that hole. Instead of the idea of looking and saying, learning, growth, cultivating these leaders from within, I think there's less belief that there can be growth that leads to effective leadership. So it's not just what is when you see a person, when you see a market, when you see a neighborhood. And that's like another important aspect of people who invest or people who even identify opportunities. 
one of the things I've been thinking about quite a bit. And I wish I, I was really young when I had this idea, but about 10 years ago, they were offering really cheap properties in Detroit. And it's a city that people like to trash on all the time. But if you think about it, pretty strategic position with the Great Lakes and everything and the freshwater source, it's bound to make a comeback. And you know, those opportunities, it's a matter of seeing what can be as opposed to just seeing what is. You're nailing it, this idea of vision. Mm-hmm. You know, having a vision for the organization or having a vision for community, yeah. like what you're talking about, Detroit. Yeah. And there's been remarkable work that's been <laughs> happening there. That's another thing that I find people discount, which is if they have that innate ability to see, if you will, a future, or if they have an ability to cultivate a vision that is really motivating and empowering to an organization, they discount it. They often discount it. And there's a lot of work to go down around to renewing that. But there's another piece here, though, Stephen, around mindset that you have brought up a few times here. I love reading interviews with people who are in their 90s or whatever it might be, age-wise, like really old people, right? There are two prevailing themes that come out of these interviews, whether they be written or, you know, or on screen. One is this idea of regret which is, you know what, I'm looking back at my life and I didn't pursue the people I should have pursued to have in my life. And I didn't take that opportunity that came along when I should have, right? And it's just heartbreaking to see these people looking back with so much disappointment. Then there's this other story where there's this little guy or little woman and they're like, you know, I may not have been the smartest person, but man, I wrung everything out of my opportunities. I took every risk that I could take and it didn't always work out, but I seemed to land on my feet somewhere along the way. That mindset can be so powerful from a leadership perspective to be able to look back from today, if you will, and say, if I am going to make the most out of my experience and the people that I lead, what risk do I need to take? What is it that I need to have in our daily experience, that's going to leave me looking back saying, I made the most out of this. Well, that's something I've heard a lot from people in the coaching world about designing your legacy, thinking back at the end of your life, what do you want it to be that you led? What are you going to be happy you did? What are you going to regret? It's just, I mean, I'm emotional just thinking about it because it is really powerful and it's an important thing for people to realize now with the regret side of things, do you feel like oftentimes risks that people don't take are just because fears are overblown? Or is there another dynamic when person says, I'm feeling called to this, but it's too risky. I, I can't do it. Whatever, whatever makes people shy away. You know, it's, it's a dramatic simplification, but you've got love on one side and you've got fear on the other. So much of our lives can be, as we pay attention and observe ourselves about like what experience we're having in this moment. Are we frustrated? Are we bored? All these different expressions of fear, right? Low-grade fear. That's something that is in so many of us, right? So it's less about the abject terror of a situation and a lot more about that quiet voice within us that's saying, don't do that. Don't take that chance, right? Because it'll go bad. So that's there so much. Adopting this other mindset, though, 
where you get away from this idea of pass-fail. That's at the heart of the emotional intelligence construct, which is it's not pass-fail. Life is not pass-fail. It's about what outcome did you get and how do you go forward, right? What do I learn from this? Even if I did not get the outcome that I'm after, there's something in this for me. It might be tomorrow. When I look back at my entire life, I feel like all my experiences and my DNA have brought me to exactly where I need to be, which is doing the work that I'm doing. And that's where you are. And what I'm wondering is then, does it become the thought process of the worst outcome you can have is not having the experience, is stagnation, is kind of being stuck as opposed to having tried something and failed and maybe you lost some money or you lost some amount of your time and effort and energy that you put into the endeavor. I'll go even further and say that those fears are in a vacuum. If you, Stephen, are crystal clear on the things that are most important to you in your life, your values, the things that you've got to have to say, this is a life well lived, whether I'm in a leadership role or away from work or wherever, right? So if I know that, and I know the things that I bring to the world that are unique to me, that the world needs from me, it gets a lot harder to, if you will, succumb to that fear because it's no longer in a vacuum. It's like, I know it's important. I know what I have to offer. I see an opportunity to give what I have to offer to the world. I feel a little bit nervous about it, but I don't have the same grip of fear knowing that as if I'm just sitting there going, you know, just kind of ambly bouncing along, not really knowing what's important to me. You're saying the process of moving from this fear to love is this awareness of self, this kind of awareness of this is what I'm good at. This is why I'm valuable. This is what I value. This is what I think is important. And this is what I was meant to do. I hate to beat on that drum, but self-awareness is absolutely foundational in any type of growth situation. If you don't know where you are today, you can't take this step forward. You can't objectively integrate new information or feedback. And so it sounds like self-awareness is a big part of your coaching program. Would you be able to tell anyone in the audience out there, anyone that's interested in contacting you, first of all, how to contact you, and then also a little bit about how the program, you know, Brent Mullins Coaching works? I am a very open and, and eager networker. So if anyone reaches out to me on LinkedIn, which is probably the easiest way to contact me, they can go to my handles, Brent Mullins Executive Coach, right at LinkedIn. Or there's the website too, which has a form for reaching out or, or making a phone call. Those are the easy ways. And I appreciate that offer for putting that contact information out there. I do get inquiries frequently from like a life coaching perspective. And that's not something that I do. But I know a lot of coaches, right? So I'm also willing to network and help people get connected to the resources that they're after. For people who are in leadership roles, who are looking for a coach or just want to explore the idea, I'm glad to give people time to help them figure out like, what is it that is the opportunity in front of them, right? Through conversation and dialogue. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense because sometimes people end up in bad places because they haven't figured out what they wanted yet. Absolutely. They're talented. They've got so much to offer and therefore they can navigate forward, but it's not speaking to their heart. It's not getting them lit up. It's not having them feel like every day they want to get up and get something going because they know which direction they're heading in. So I have one more question I want to ask you today. 
And that is that you talked about having, and it's come up in other episodes too, about having community. People talk about you are the average of the five people you spend the most time around. It's a little bit of an oversimplification, but if you're around the right people, you're going to get the right messages. Now, for people who don't have community, what I'm wondering is, is getting a coach, whether what you need is a executive coach, a career coach, a life coach, a business coach, all the different coaching, is that a good place to start? Or do you think that in this process of getting that transformation from negative to positive, you also need to find other people to just immerse yourself around on a regular basis, the kind of people that are not going to say, oh, the market's saturated. Oh, it's too risky. The kind of people that are going to say, this is a good idea. I really like the fact that you're doing. Coaches, Stephen and you and I working together, then what we're doing together is an incredible examination of your experience, which is rare to stop and have people come together as a conspiracy of good for you. Right. And so that's a way to get unstuck if you're not quite sure, if you feel a little bit stuck. And I would encourage people to start even just like two people, like your community doesn't have to be 20 people tomorrow. Starting a connection with people who can have your best interest and you have their best interest at heart is a beautiful way to get going on that. Right. And you just add over time. And so, yeah. So you're saying people can start like, let's say someone's new to a new city or someone just for some reason, don't really have that many people in their lives. It happens. It's happened to a lot of people, especially during COVID or even just in general in this whole, we're doing everything online era. People can still start with like a couple of people, or even if you don't know anyone that really well, you can reach out and just kind of look at your network and be like, okay, you know, this person seems like a really positive influence in my life. This person is going places and maybe has some ideas and would be a good good input into that whole, how we all naturally influence each other in attitudes and life and stuff like that. Why can't you start small and just like have coffee once a month and just agree to bring up, like, I would like some perspective. I would like you guys, who's ever in my little coffee group to share their perspective on the challenges that they're facing. And here's what I'm facing at work in a leadership role or in life, whatever it might be. That makes perfect sense. Well, Brent, thank you so much for joining us today on Actions Antidotes. Once again, that's Brent Mullins Coaching. And once again, everyone, just be aware of yourself, be curious, be constantly willing to learn something new and be open to new perspectives. And people often talk about the first wave is internal. You change yourself. And then it's true. If we work on ourselves, we become aware, we become connected with who we are, who we are really every aspect of it, the good, the bad, the ugly, all the terrible things we may have done in the past, come to grips with it, everything like that, and then find a way to move forward and find out what we really want. And my hope is that everybody listening, everybody Brent's coaching and everybody that anyone else I've had on is coaching as well is on the path to find the better place because in that better place, more people doing what they really want to do will lead to a better overall result for humanity as a whole. A life well led. And Stephen, thank you so much. It was a joy to talk to you. Yes. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to those listeners out there for listening. And please tune in to more episodes of Actions Antidotes, where we'll have more interesting discussions that hopefully give you some inspiration as well as some information and some ideas about how to go further along your path to getting the life that you really want and you really deserve. 